Jesus just as much as we hope to in here as well. I love it when there's a mass exodus that shows what God's doing amongst the younger generations here at Beacon, isn't it? That's thrilling. You can feel the difference. God's doing lots amongst our younger folk, which includes Adrian, apparently. (laughs) Young folk. Just this once. Just this once. I'm slightly boomy. Where's Lukey boy? Slightly boomy. You all right? Just adjusting. Thank you, mate. Just take a bit of the echo out of the room. Just a tiny bit. Thank you. As that song just said, hallelujah for the cross. It helped. Did you feel your spirits just rise while you were singing that song? It's like, look at what he's done for us. He's fought this war and he's won. That's what we're going to celebrate as we go walk, walk up to and through communion this morning. Before we do, should we just stand? Let's recite the Apostles' Creed together. It's always good. For 2,000 years now, the church has been reciting this. This is our declaration of faith of what it is we believe and what we affirm. Let me just read out. Just got, I've got something to say first that as, uh, as kind of the leader's part to lead us into it, and then I'll give us an indication. We'll declare this together. But it says here, We have gathered here to publicly confess our Catholic or universal, same word, our universal faith in God. God calls people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to turn away from their sins to place their faith in Jesus, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and to become saints, people made holy by God. The Apostle Paul wrote, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We affirm faith collectively, but also as individuals. Let us declare together, let's say this together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to take your seats. Amen. So 2,000 years now, the church has been declaring that statement as a statement of faith. This is what we believe. These are the things we're not going to let go of. Sometimes in church, we have things that we write in pencil. Where we put the chairs, they make a difference. But we're happy to rub out that plan and go for another plan. There are some things we write in biro, the kind of the style of music we use. We, we, we feel it's, it's, it helps us in our current generation we live in society and our current climate and culture, the type of music we use. But again, we're happy to scribble that out and write something else in Byro. But there are things that are written in blood that we will never let go of, including what it means to be saved, including what it means to be the church, including what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and so on. Those are things written in blood. And what we just declared are things that are written in blood that we believe the Bible affirms and we will never let go of. And so for us, Christians here today in modern United Kingdom, 
declaring out loud without fear of recrimination these basic biblical truths, like we've just done, uh, that is somewhat of a privilege, really, what we have. We need to not take that for granted. Being able to worship freely is something we can too easily sometimes take for granted in this country. Out of the 195 nations that currently exist on this planet, in over 50 of them, over a quarter of the nations on this planet, it is either outright um, illegal, or at the very least extremely dangerous, to worship like this. Over a quarter of the countries still in this world. But here in the UK, 500 years ago, it wasn't a lot different. Only a few hundred years ago, it's the same problem existed. Because in the 1500s, just during a period of just three years, Queen Mary I, she became known as Bloody Mary for obvious in a minute reasons, just during three years, from 50, 1555 onwards, in a period of three years, she had 288 people rounded up. These were men, these were women, these were elderly, included four kids. Four children were included in that 288. She had them rounded up and she had them burnt to death at the stake in big public shows, including somewhere at Canterbury. Some of that happened at Canterbury. And in, in these moments, as these people were burned at the stake of all ages... Farmers would sell snacks to the crowd. Have some popcorn while you watch this. Some people brought their kids to watch. To us it's insane, isn't it? This is what was happening. And even the victims' friends, those who were being martyred, their friends could pay to ease their suffering by having you bung the guards a bit of money and they have a little a tiny keg of gunpowder tied to the person's waist or their neck. So when the flames reached the keg, things progressed a bit more rapidly and therefore it was over a bit quicker. Nice, isn't it? Why was this happening? Why did she round these people up and have them burned? Well, J.C. Ryle was a bishop from around 1890, he wrote this later on. He was reflecting back about this history in the church, and he says, the principal reason why they were burned was because they refused one of the peculiar doctrines of the Catholic Church. Catholic just means universal church. But at the time, it also is referring to the Roman Catholic Church. It says, on that doctrine in almost every case, hinged their life or death. If they admitted it, they might live. If they refused it, they must die. And the doctrine in question was understanding what's behind communion. The question was, was the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus Christ present in these consecrated elements of bread and wine? Was that in that moment his real flesh and his real blood? That was the question. And J.C. Ryle, he continues, did they, these people, did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ was present on the so-called altar so soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admit that, they were burned. Now, why was that such a vital issue? Why, why, we wouldn't dream of fighting to the death over what's what the understanding of communion is, would we? To us, it's unthinkable. We can't even get a head around that this really happened in our country. I mean, on the one hand, the fact we don't fight to the death over this, on the one hand, thank God we don't, obviously. But on the other, we need, so need to ask, at the, end of the other end of the spectrum, have we gone too far in being too dismissive of the importance of communion, um, of what it essentially is and what it does? We need to ask ourselves that. And therefore... Following that question, we also have to ask what will help us get the right balance. Now, I'll be honest, sometimes I don't give it all the weight it deserves. Not meaning to, but sometimes, you know, just communion happens and I'll eat the bread and I'll drink the wine and I'll thank Jesus for dying for me and moving on to the next bit. Now, I don't mean to be flippant, but in reflection, 
Sometimes I look back and go, <clears throat> I didn't make the most of that moment. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> excuse me. On reflection, I don't always give it the weight it deserves. But, <clears throat> excuse me. But also, while it can be handled irreverently, or it can be belittled, we can also over-legalise it and go too far the other way, and it can be veer into heretical territory, um, and it can be declared as something it isn't, like the Roman Catholic Church were doing at the time. Thank you. Ah, oh, Mark's doing it. <coughs> Thank you, Mark. You are a star. I've always liked you. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Thank you. <clears throat> it can be declared as something that it isn't as well. I mean, there's, there's an ex- there are extremes. The Roman Catholic Church were declaring it as something it wasn't, and people were burned for denying that and refusing to, uh, to accept that. And sometimes we can also go too far and make too little of it as well. Um, we, do, we do not affirm that Jesus' actual flesh and blood is present when this is happening, when we're partaking in communion. It's like when Jesus' words were a metaphor. When, when he said, I am the vine, did not mean he's got grapes hanging off his ears. Does it? We know that. When he said, I am the door, it doesn't mean he's got hinges and a mahogany wood stain. Some people have. Who was that Dickinson bloke who did the Antiques Roadshow? Can't remember his name, Dickie Dickinson or something. He had a mahogany, was it? Richard Dickinson, David Dickinson. He had a mahogany wood stain. Jesus, when he said, I'm the door, doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that. And so when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, he's inferring that they're symbols. It should not be taken any other way. We understand that and we affirm that as a church. Nothing magical occurs when the food we eat and the, and the, and the juice or the wine that we drink Nothing happens to that other than it's a symbol and it helps us remember. But while we understand what, what is happening as we practice this, we also need to be sure how we do it is thought through as well. For example, some churches, they practice communion far less often than we do. It's just the way it is. Some churches practice it far more often than we do as well. I don't know what's going on today. Some churches do it far more. We hope we find the right balance of frequency for Beacon Church in this current season, we hope. Um, we might do it more often, might do it less often in the future. We don't, we don't know. We hope every couple of weeks, twice a month or so is appropriate for now. But when we do gather around the table, we also hope we do it well. We want to help each other to do that with the right mindset and understanding. I mean, Francis Chan is an American pastor. He's now church planting elsewhere around the world. Um, he met with some believers in India and they said to him, in America, at church, you go running when you hear there's a particular worship leader on that Sunday or there's a particular visiting speaker. You go flocking. I'm going this week. Have you heard who's leading the band? Oh, it's going to be great. That's when you go running. He said, we in India, we go running when we hear there's going to be communion. And that just pinches me in the heart, and I'm thinking, have I got the right attitude to communion? Have I, are we missing something? And so, therefore, the question is, how can we handle this well? Well, 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to start turning there, we're going to look at that in just a sec. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, they were not practicing it well. Um, but what's interesting is that Paul doesn't say, you're making a mess of this, so stop it. He doesn't say, don't do it. He says, do it well. Or to quote Mike Betts about 
anything in church, he says to, the answer is, the answer to abuse, as in misuse, the answer to abusing something is not, to, is not non-abuse, it's proper use. And how can we apply proper use when it comes to communion? Well, what helps us is to take a 360 degree view of communion. We did this, I looked at the last time we did this, took a, an all-round view of uh, communion. We did it in 2008, so I think we're probably overdue. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to, we can be too limited in our understanding and practice of communion to the point where we, we don't appreciate the weight of it because we haven't thought about the rest of it. So we're going to look at communion from different angles. That's what we're going to do. In, um, I don't know if you've been there, but in Fenchurch Street in the city of London, number 20, there's a great big commercial skyscraper. They house loads and loads of insurance companies and other corporations. Number 20, Fenchurch Street. It's, it's near London Bridge. It's nicknamed the walkie-talkie because when you see it, it resembles a two-way um, radio handset. And the top three floors, 35, 36, and 37, are conflated into one big open but indoor space, three floors high. Top three floors called the Sky Garden. And you can visit it for free. You have to book ahead on the website, uh, book your slot. But it's free. Jenny and I have been there with Amy. It's brilliant. And from the top there, you get this 360-degree view of London. And it helps you appreciate London from different perspectives. And I'm not just talking about direction. I'm also talking, metaphorically, across time as well. Because firstly, you can look back. As you look out, right next door is St. Paul's Cathedral. And you can reflect on the history that that speaks and shouts of St. Paul himself, the Apostle himself, Mr. Church Planter Extraordinaire and Father of Churches and so on, wrote a third of the New Testament and so on. His name's right there in front of you. But also it's it's significant in history. It's where Martin Luther King came and preached. Uh, Suffragette is one of the targets for the Suffragette movement. It's such a big monument in the city. They they chose as a target to get their voice uh, heard for women's rights, for the right to vote, and so on and so forth. That's just St. Paul's alone, plus much more that it represents and teaches us about. But if you look the other way, you can see the Tower Bridge, and you can see the Tower of London, right next to it, and the North Bank of the Thames, right next to it. And that is where some of those martyrs I mentioned earlier, that's where some of them were held before they were taken up the road to get burned. There's multiple aspects of history in London. As you look around from the Sky Garden, you get to look back and reflect on the past, if you choose to. You get to look back. But also, you get to look around. And again, I don't just mean north, east, south, and west. You're also doing it with others. There's huge great crowds. You're mingling. You get to take your friends and your family with you. It's not just an individual thing. It's a communal thing. You get to look around and appreciate that you are enjoying the view together with a whole crowd of people. It's a communal activity. But you also get to look within as well. Inside, there are eateries, expensive, just go there for an hour, take a bottle of water with you, eat outside. (laughs) It's nice, you get to appreciate, if you want to, you've got the spare cash, they're nice eateries, but there's lots of greenery there as well, it's just, it's just so much flora in there, there's there's, um, there's lilies and there's birds of paradise plants, there's cherry trees that come into full blossom at the right time of year, it's beautiful, it's like a giant greenhouse, there's an internal beauty to it that you can appreciate, you can look in and examine and appreciate and be honest about what's inside as well. So you get to look back in time, you get to look around at what's actually happened in this communal experience, you also get to look within and and, uh, reflect on what's inside, but you also, fourthly, you get to reflect forward, because not only do you reflect on the past, you can see the future of London 
as well. You get to see all the latest buildings. There's the Gherkin just down the road and the Scalpel and the Shard and all these fancy names of these new buildings. And you also see the cranes of buildings that are yet to be. You can see London's future before your eyes as well. You get to reflect on the future of this great city as well. And in many ways, communion helps us do the same. We're going to, like I say, look at 1 Corinthians 11. It's going to help unfold that for us. Paul shows them, and now us, that each time we share in the Lord's Supper, it's like in the Sky Garden, it becomes a sacred place where we get to, we can stand still and we can acknowledge Christ's glory through the cross from different perspectives. We can look back over time, we'll talk about that. We get to look around and realise this is a communal thing. We get to look within, we get to examine ourselves and reflect on where we stand before him. And we also get to look forward to the promises that are still yet to come as well. And it's all wrapped up in this one act, this one event. So, 1 Corinthians 11, let's have a look at what Paul has to say and we'll reflect on these four perspectives of communion. Um, just to give context, I'm sure many of you know this already, but if you're not aware, as Paul's writing this, this letter, this, we call it 1 Corinthians, it's officially his second one, we've lost the first one in history. And he's writing back to this church and he realises they are in a mess. They're in a right mess, aren't they? And um, he's having to reprimand them because of division, particularly. There's selfishness and there's greediness going on in this church family. And uh, there's a complete lack of respect for one another. Um, and these, these things are all brought to the surface when they practice this sacrament. And he has to speak into it. So from verse 17, let's have a little read. With that in mind, that's what he's speaking into. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine coming together as church and being told that's the worst thing you could be doing? You're making it worse. What are you doing? It's awful, isn't it? So he continues. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So people are speaking up. That's how he's hearing. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They might think they're doing it, but he said, you're, you're making it something it isn't. He continues, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. <laughs> what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And he continues, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul is speaking into their division and saying, you're just making matters worse doing this. But he's not saying stop it, he's saying do it well. Realise what you've done, repent and do it well. And then he reminds them, literally, Jesus told us what to do and why. And so he refers back to what we have now 2,000 years ago, Jesus telling us to not stop remembering his sacrifice. So Paul is is literally repeating Jesus' words from what we, we now call the Last Supper. You can see at the end of Matthew, the end of Luke, uh, the end of Mark as well, 
uh, just hours before Jesus' arrest, he and the disciples were, like, like good Jews, they were practicing the annual Passover meal, which is when the Jewish people, they celebrate um, uh, Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt into freedom in the promised land. And celebrating that moment, they're released and saved. And Jesus is using the same moment as they practice this meal on this Thursday night, He's using it to press home the need for his people to celebrate on a regular basis in the same way, this very same thing, freedom from slavery, but in a different way, not freedom from Egypt, but freedom from sin and death. And Jesus is just hours away from enacting his once-only, earth-shattering, cosmos-splitting, if you like, his, his triumph over Satan and sin and death. It's the ultimate prison break, isn't it? He breaks through and gets us out. And in that, he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. This Passover meal where they're celebrating Jewish freedom. He's saying, do this in remembrance of me. Not that. Do this in remembrance of me. Your deliverance from slavery into freedom. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. That word is so vital. It's not Jesus' example and teachings that save us. It's his death and resurrection. But as we practice communion, we get to reflect back on the past and what, not just what Jesus tells us, but what he's done for us. We need to remember his death. We need to remember how he died and why he died, why his blood was shed. The Old Testament, Leviticus, tells us the life is in the blood. That's the phrase that it says, the life is in the blood. And for us, humans, our human blood, that is a river of life that flows through our veins, isn't it? It's this river of life and sustenance and cleansing as well and healing. It flows through our, our veins. That's human blood. So imagine God's blood flowing. What that is. It's the greatest of life being given. So much so it's powerful enough to defeat death and sin and set us free. Jesus died that we might live. And so woe betide us to not keep that central in our hearts and minds. Right? Because we, we can get so caught up in disagreements about wider theology or get so consumed in our heads like, oh, I don't know if I pray enough or I don't know if I read my Bible enough or we can get so caught up in just like, am I worthy enough? I'm not worthy. I'm rubbish. I can't, I can't look him in the eye, all this kind of thing. Or even just life's irreligious, secular stuff just distracts us from dwelling on Christ and what he's done for us. It's easily done, isn't it? Even just the neutral, not good, not bad, just stuff of life can consume us and the busyness of life and things and bling and so on. And all of these things in our heads, that our thoughts and our anxieties and our, and our arguments and, and, and so on, it can all just consume us and it can escalate the more our eyes wander from the cross. So it's as simple as that. And even just to be bored of or offhand about the cross is a dangerous place to be. Who wants to be thirsty for more of Jesus in your life? Put your hand up. Do you know how? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Dwell on the cross. Who wants to know how loved you are? Look at the cross. Who's lacking in passion for the lost? Don't find them just sharing. Do you know what I've got? You can have this. Do you find that that's all subsided? Look at the cross. The more you look at the cross, it's like other people need to hear this. 
Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Do this in remembrance of me. Look at the cross. Do you find yourself caught up in today's worries? Look at the cross. Do you find yourself caught in a cycle of sin that you just can't break? Look at the cross. Do you even just find yourself caught in the motions of, just going through the motions of Christianity? It doesn't feel alive to you anymore. Look at the cross over and over again. Jesus knows, he knows our hearts and minds so well and he knows we wander easily and he knows therefore that we need this central anchor point for everything in our lives. And so Jesus is saying, look at the cross repeatedly, remember me. And so as we take the bread and wine, as we come together, gather around the table shortly, it's not that we try to channel anything, try to muster anything and make anything spiritual happen. You know, it's, not, it's not like that. Do we just go into neutral and just kind of go through the motions either? But here is where we simply remember. And the more we remember, the more that anchor point grows again in our hearts. Yeah, just for a moment, close your eyes. And just think of a moment when a friend or a family member of yours has done something lovely for you. It can be a token gesture. They just remembered you and sent a text at a moment you needed it. Maybe they did a big act for you. Maybe they bought you a gift, an act of kindness, something they said. Think of that moment when someone did something wonderful for you. Can you sense that original joy of when it happened, welling up again? Can you feel that? As you remember that moment, you start smiling. Oh, that was brilliant. That was lovely. That really warmed my cockles. You know? Well, it's the same here. As we remember what Christ has done, we can remember that original joy of salvation. This is my Jesus. This is what he's done for me. I can't believe I kind of forgot. <laughs> I can't believe it's wandered from my mind. Why is this not so central? Coming back to remember him wheels it all up again. And that is why we need to look back. But also, we get to look around. We don't just do this as a bunch of individuals. We do this as a community. This is called communion. Communion. Union with Christ, but also union together. We do this together. It's a communal act. Communion comes from the Latin for communio, which just means sharing in common. That's what it's talking about. Sharing in common with Christ now through the Holy Spirit, but also with each other because of Christ. And so it's unity with each other. We're united by him together in all things as we operate, as we live as his people together, including doing this. Unity together. And the word that is frequently used in the New Testament repeatedly to describe the, the relationship amongst the, within the early church is the Greek word koinonia, is the word that keeps popping up in the original text. It pops up 20 times in total in the New Testament. Two times I mentioned in a minute. The other 18 times are referring to our fellowship. It's like, almost like on a horizontal level, like our horizontal union together. Koinonia, it's, a, it's our intimate fellowship together. It's communion by intimate participation. That's the koinonia. This is what we have, even when we don't feel like it, even when it doesn't look like it. This is what we have now because of Christ. And communion is a declaration of this unity together as Christ's body. I mean, Paul's saying in verse 18, uh, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. They weren't exactly living it out loud, were they? It wasn't exactly koinonia on display, was it? 
communion was currently a, a demonstration of their disunity. We need to ensure that as we do this, we recognize our unity together in Christ. When they were coming together in the, in the Corinthian church, they were doing it as part of a big meal after their gatherings. It was a big part of when they came together, they did this big meal called a love meal or an agape feast is what they called it. Um, it's like we've, we've done sometimes after, after Sundays. We sometimes stay together, brought our own food and gathered together and just had some fellowship together, haven't we? Um, this was a significant part of their regular meetings. It's how they did it. And it would include the breaking of bread towards the end. But some of people were treating the Lord's Supper as an excuse just to chow down and be gluttonous, uh, even to the point of getting drunk, as Paul says. Some of you are quaffing this wine, <laughs> knocking it back. But they're also ignoring people who are going without, who couldn't afford to bring any food with them. And they're not sharing it out. It's like, I've got my pat lunch, I'm all right. Munching down, I mean, pita bread. I ignore you, you should have bought some. And Paul's like, what are you doing? Where's your koinonia? Where's your fellowship together? But Paul says, he doesn't say, stop it. He says, do it well. Live out your koinonia, your fellowship together. Live it out loud. So we need to ask as we come together, what is our unity like here at Beacon Church, for example? Are we ignoring others around us? Are we only thinking of ourselves? It's important to reflect, isn't it? Is there any friction with a brother and sister, brother or sister here? Is there someone you need to speak to and just make peace together and pray together? Is there someone you need to ask for forgiveness for something? Or is there someone you need to forgive? Let's do this well. Let's do this well. But this, like I say, there's two other instances in the New Testament when the word koinonia pops up. It's in the previous chapter, chapter 10. Um, the other instances, like I say, refers to our horizontal union together. But these two, verses, uh, two, two um, occasions in verse 16 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, it refers to our vertical union together with Christ. Paul says, verse 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? There it is, koinonia. Is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation, a fellowship in the body of Christ? He's saying as he's describing the breaking of bread in remembrance of Jesus, that we participate intimately in the body and blood of the living Lord Jesus Christ. It's our vertical union, our fellowship with him as we fellowship together in it. Beautiful communion. It's a brilliant word. So, diversity is great horizontally. Let's embrace that. Whether we feel like it or not, we are one big, happy, weird family. Aren't we? We don't always get it right, but division is wrong. Just look around you. We are multi, we're multinational, we're multi-ethnic, we're multi-generational, aren't we? Uh, there are, uh, we have um, different backgrounds together, we have different gifts between us, we have different personalities, and we are all made one new man together in Christ. Amen. Isn't that brilliant? And so as we gather around this table and partake in the bread and the wine, let's just remember that. And let's celebrate it. But then Paul goes on, because not only do we look back, not only do we look around, we also look within, some of which have already been taken. But Paul continues in verse 27 of chapter 11, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's pretty weighty. You can't do this flippantly. Don't do it in an unworthy manner. Like I say, some are even getting drunk as they're doing it. The, the irreverence there is perfectly clear, but they didn't see it. They didn't think it was a problem. And Paul says this despises the church. Verse 22, um, do you despise the church and hum- humiliate those who have nothing? He says, as you're acting like this, you're despising the church, let alone God himself. So note he says we need to do this in a worthy manner. He's not saying we must be worthy. That's the point. We can't. Jesus is worthy, and we get his worthiness before God. But a worthy manner doesn't mean perfect either. Again, <laughs> that's the point of Christ's sacrifice. It's about doing it with the right heart, the right openness and vulnerability and honesty and humility before God. And Paul is just wanting them to understand that even if they did relearn their table manners and be a bit kinder to each other, to simply eat and drink and practice breaking the bread without that division is still not enough. He's still saying, examine your hearts. What else is hidden beneath the surface? Is there something you need to speak to God about? And he says, eating the bread and drinking of the cup in an unworthy manner, that person will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. To, to profane means to be abusive about, to, to be vulgar or foul, to, to defile it. I don't want to be in that position. So Lord, just if there's anything I need to be, we need to repent of, then please show me. Please help me. So Paul says, verse 28, examine yourself. Examine yourself. That's not your elder's job. It's not your brother's and sister's job. While we have responsibility for each other between us to point each other to the Lord and, and help kind of rub off the sharp edges there is a place for, our, for that between us. But ultimately, the examination of the heart, the, box, the box starts with you, and it stops with you. So as we come together, we're going to, do it, we're going to sing a song in a minute, but as we sing this song, let's just examine our hearts, humbly come before him. Just, Lord, will you just reveal anything I need to deal with and need to talk to you about, and need to apologize for, need to repent of. Just confession and appropriate response. You're washed in his blood. He cleans you. You're still accepted. You can still look him in the eye. He still loves you beyond your utter imagination. But let's deal with things and let's talk to him about it. So let's just press pause there. I'm going to play a song. You can stand, you can sing, you can sit, you can reflect, you can just pray. But let's just look back on the cross, what Christ has done for us. Let's look around and appreciate this is a a thing that we do together. But also let's look within and ask him if there's anything we need to talk to him about. Amen? You up for that? Let's just play the next song. Amen. I'd like to take your seats if you haven't already. Just just before we, we do this, there's one more aspect we need to do. We've looked back, we've looked around, we've looked within. We're also going to look forward as well. Let's not forget to look forward because, um, as Paul says in verse 26 in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, he repeats Jesus' words, what Jesus is telling us to do and why. And then he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming back. Amen. Jesus did not stay dead. And we may be remembering the death of Christ, 
but it's not a funeral wake. We're not mourning his loss. We're mourning his, we're celebrating his victory. While it's the place for sobriety and, and an appropriate weight to it, like I say, it's a place of celebration. He's alive for goodness sake. It's a moment to rejoice, not mourn. And so it's important for us to never separate the two. When we speak of the cross, we must talk of the empty tomb. When we talk of his resurrection, we must talk of his death. They're two sides of the same coin. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You're dead to sin and raised to new life in him. It's all part of the same act. It's not just a Friday on its own and not just a Sunday on its own. It's the weekend. Death to the old, rebirth to the new. And because Jesus is, is alive, his resurrection absolutely guarantees that all his other promises will still come true. He is coming back. So this is a celebration, not just for what has happened, but what also will happen. At the Last Supper, Jesus says, Matthew 26, he says, I will not drink again of this fruit, as he's passing the cup around, he says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there's going to be a big gap, and I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I do it with you in my Father's kingdom. And in John chapter 14, Jesus has already said to the disciples, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And the Bible describes Jesus as a groom and the church as his bride, this perfect marriage of God and his people. It's the groom and the bride together. It's a big picture that keeps coming up, even up to and including Revelation. We see the great wedding feast at the end of time where bride and groom are together. And it's, it's the... Jesus to the church as they share this cup of wine Jesus is also saying I'm going away to prepare a place and I'm going to come back for you now we hear that and we go well that's nice but the disciples heard more than that because of the context culture they lived in they understand Jesus is referring to a whole lot more than we're often aware of because Jewish marriages they focus on two elements the betrothal and the marriage. We have an engagement, you wear a ring. You can throw it back at the bloke at any point. You can have that back. It's, it, it's, our engagement is slightly less sealed, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, yeah, Jenny's, Jenny's, yeah, she's telling the story now, yeah. I'll tell you later. Nowadays in Jewish marriages, they still have the two elements, the betrothal and the marriage, but they tend to happen in the same event. On, on the wedding day, they have the betrothal part of the ceremony and the marriage part of the ceremony, but in ancient times, it was very, very different. And the betrothal, what we would consider an engagement, but it's so much more, the betrothal is as good as declaring you are married, but you're not living together. It's not fully consummated yet, but you're as good as married. Um, you're not living together as man and wife, but unfaithfulness within that betrothal um, is considered as adultery, and you still need a divorce. So Joseph, when he discovers Mary's pregnant at the beginning, that she's pregnant with Jesus, when he hears that, he vows to divorce her, but they're not married yet. That's how seriously they took betrothal. It's like, this is it. It's us for life. We haven't had the big marriage bit yet, but to even break this needs a divorce. That's how seriously they took it. And I love this. When a Jewish man makes a betrothal, he presents what's called a ketubah. It still happens today. This written covenant. 
And you can look it up on Google. You can look up these ketchupers and the, and the language they use. There's basic standard ones and there's more elaborate ones. But it's a written notice of covenant being made. It's written vows. Well, they sign it together. They read it out, but they also sign it together. And these written vows are beautiful. And you want to know why? Because even in today's ones, let alone back then, the groom, his promises in this ketchupah, this covenant, his promises far outweigh what the bride ever does. Far outweighs, almost exclusively. It's remarkably protective of her. She says, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll have you, (laughs) kind of. He says, I'm going to do this for you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to care for you, I'm going to watch over you, I'm going to provide for you. It's just, it's huge. What he promises far outweighs what is expected of her. It's remarkably protective and it's such a beautiful thing. And if she accepts this offer of betrothal, she drinks from a cup of wine that he's poured out for her, that he presents to her. And her saying yes, like when he's down in bended knee and she goes, yeah, all right, outside at Disney Castle or whatever. That's how we do it. When they do it, they offer a cup of wine. Here's my offer of everything I'm going to do for you for life. Will you say yes? If she says yes, she drinks from the cup. It's a cup of covenant. You remember the language that Jesus uses. He passes this cup of covenant around. He goes, do this in remembrance of me and I'm coming back for you. Because what happens when the groom, she says yes and she drinks from this cup, the groom says, I will not drink of this cup again until we're reunited. Does it sound familiar? Why will he not drink from it again? Because if he's drinking from that cup again, he's doing it with someone else. If it's not with her, that's, breaking the, that's annulling the engagement, isn't it? He's breaking it. He's proposing to someone else. So he says, I'm not drinking of this again until we're reunited. And I've taken you home. Because he goes away, and at the time it had been up, for, up, for, up to a year or so, and he'll go away and prepare a home for them to live in for the rest of their lives. And he'll come back, take her home. They have the big marriage ceremony, the big wedding feast. And he'll take her home to the home he spent all this time preparing, and they'll drink of the cup together. So the disciples hearing Jesus using this language... They get it straight away. It means so much more to them. As they hear those words uttered, they know Jesus is offering the greatest of promises, the greatest of proposals, the greatest of a future together that is absolutely guaranteed. That's what he's offering. We as his people are betrothed, as good as married. The relationship is cemented. Jesus' promises to us far outweigh anything that is required of us. Is so protective of his bride, of his people. And while we haven't had the fully realized marriage ceremony yet, that's when we get taken to our forever home one day. But in the meantime, the deal is sealed. It's as good as done. He is coming back for us to take us home, and that is an absolute guarantee. So as we partake of this, let's look forward to his return, knowing that we are already safe in him. Amen? Amen. So, let's eat and drink. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer and you don't know Jesus in the same way, for starters, it's never too late. It's never too soon either. Just don't wait. Don't wait. You can step into this new life right here, right now. We can pray with you, whoever brought you. We'd love to pray with you. Step into this new life in what Jesus has made possible for you. He died in your place that you might live. So repent of your old life. Accept the new life he offers you. Believe, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Enjoy this new adventure that you can step into with him and you can enjoy communion with us. This is for believers.
or at the very least, observe and ponder what it might be to what it might be like to know a God like this. Watch what we do. But as we do this, let's let's look back. Let's reflect on what Jesus has done for us. Let's look around. Remember, we do this together as His people in complete unity, together with Him. Let's look within. Let's be honest. Let's examine ourselves when necessary. Do it in a worthy manner. And let's look forward to that great day when he'll return for us, his people. That is a sure thing. Like I say, it's not a time for grief or somberness. It's appropriate reflection, but it's a time of joy and release and celebration. Um, If you've got children, as they they come back in, uh, just recognize this is for believers. Teach your kids. It's an opportunity to teach your children about this. But one last thing. As Jesus was about to go to his death, and as he passed the cup around and the bread, as he broke the bread, it says Jesus gave thanks. Even as he was about to suffer and die, Jesus gave thanks. That's something we can do. So I'm going to play a song, and then when you're ready, start coming forward, pray with one another. We'll have an opportunity to pray out loud together in just a minute as well. So let's listen to the next song. You don't have to sing. Like I say, you can just reflect. If you want to sing, you're more than welcome.